0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurologist who specializes in headaches explains migraine, cluster, and other types of headaches and how they're diagnosed and treated.
1: I think all headaches need to be addressed uh, as it can be a very disabling condition. Um, and even when it's mild, it can be seriously affecting the lifestyle of the affected patient.
0: And an optometrist tells what your eyes can reveal about the rest of your body. Patients
2: can have diabetic or not, they not even know they have it. Um, this is because it often has no symptoms in the early stages of it.
0: All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, an optometrist explains the vision exam and what it may reveal about your whole body health. But to begin, we'll talk with a neurologist about headache diagnosis and treatment. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is Healthlink on Air. Headache is one of the most common medical complaints, and yet it can be a challenging condition for doctors to diagnose and manage. I'm talking with a headache expert today. Dr. Als Zidane is an assistant professor of neurology at Upstate. Welcome to Healthlink on Air, Dr. Zidon.
1: Thank you, Amber. I appreciate the chance to talk to your audience.
0: In preparing for this interview, I visited the National Headache Foundation, where there's this long list of 30 different types of headaches, and I had no idea there were so many different types. I think most of us have heard of migraines, and I'm going to be talking with you at length about that. But first, I'd like to know more about some of the other types of headaches. So, to begin with, how does a person know whether their headache is a symptom of a serious problem?
1: Um that's a really good question, Amber, and it's it's actually, uh, surprisingly, is not easy to answer. Um, a headache can be uh, primary, which means it happens with no underlying disease, or secondary, which means it happens secondary to some underlying neurological disease. Um, uh, both of them can be disabling, both of them can be severe, um, and obviously it depends what the secondary disease um, that, that will determine the importance or the prognosis of, of that secondary headache. Um, so in, in uh, I think in short, we can see that um, all headaches are significant. And I, I'm gonna be talking about this in detail today. Um, a headache should not be ignored. Um, headache should really be very uh, alarming if, uh, if it happens suddenly Um, If it's it's in a person who's not used to having headache and they suddenly start having headaches, if it comes with other symptoms, like let's say fever or coughing um, uh, or weakness or numbness, um, uh, blurred vision, um, um, I think this is is some of the most important symptoms that come with it. Uh, Or if headaches change in somebody who has headache for quite some time and then suddenly they have a change in their headache pattern, Uh, All of that will indicate that something probably will need to be looked at. Um, But but again, not to undermine the importance of any headache, because I think all headaches need to be addressed, uh, as it can be a very disabling condition. Um, And even when it's mild, it can be seriously affecting the lifestyle of, of the affected patient.
0: Are there symptoms that are typically descriptive of someone who has a headache that's tied to a tumor?
1: Um, I think uh, there are some some symptoms that can alert physicians toward the possibility of having a mass lesion in the brain as as a cause for the headache. Um, However, and I have to stress this again and again and again, it's really important to know that there is no 100% rule. Which means there is an exception for every single thing I'm gonna say. However, the general rule remains general and it's worth knowing. So, yes, the headache that's usually constant, non-remitting, difficult to treat with analgesics, like the, the, the daily intake of, of Tylenol or other medication. Uh, the headache that that's worse when we're lying down and it's as it's worse when we are when we wake up from sleep. Uh, obviously, the headache that comes with other other symptoms I mentioned, like blurriness of the vision or other neurological symptoms. All of that can be alarming that it may be secondary to some growing mass in the brain. Uh, I, I have to say this is the concern of probably the majority of patients who have headache, very understandably. It can be quite scary. It's one of the scariest things that we, we can tell our patients they have. Um, however, it's quite uncommon. So, if you're listening to this and you have headache, don't jump immediately to the conclusion it may be a brain tumor. Actually, that's quite, it's it's really quite infrequent thing.
0: That's good to know. I have heard that headache can be um, a symptom of a stroke, though. Are there? Can you talk about the type of headache that someone might experience if they're, you know, having a stroke?
1: Headaches that have been... There is a subset of headache disorders um, that have been secondary to vascular reasons, and by vascular reasons, we mean anything affecting the arteries or the veins in our our brain. Now, these headaches, they share some common features, and they are really important to know. It's actually one of the things that I kind of like, make sure my residents know by heart every single time I'm quizzing them on headache because they, they can be quite important to identify in emergency setting. Um, these headaches tend to be thunderclap for the majority of them. And by thunderclap, we mean that the headache happens and reaches the peak very quickly. So, by definition, it's within five minutes. However, if we're going to go to Uh, a patient's experience, most likely patients are going to experience it as something that's just uh, as if it's a hammer that's immediately hitting them. Like they have no pain and the next second the pain is 10 out of 10. This is how most people describe thunderclap headache. And when, when we have something of that urgency, the first thing we need to think about is that why did it happen? Did the blood cease to flow somewhere, which is ischemic stroke? Did the blood start leaking somewhere, for example, into the brain, which is a hemorrhagic stroke, or into the fluid around the brain, which is the subarachnoid hemorrhage, one of the most disabling and important conditions to know? Is it a sign of thrombosis in one of the veins? And yes, all, all of that can be can be absolutely on the differential for, for that type of headache. So out of all the presentations of headache, um, probably a thunderclap headache, one that hits immediately, is the most important to recognize and seek care for?
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about headaches with neurologist Dr. Aus Zidon. Now, most people have experienced sort of a, a random headache from time to time. Is the two-aspirin remedy still the best kind of remedy for that?
1: <laughs> I, I, I'm really smiling right now. I'm trying to answer that question. It's it's uh, um, here. I'm gonna go to the point I made when we started this interview. Uh, headache is really an important. I, I mean, I I don't know why it goes what in, in the public knowledge, like uh, in, in the layman talk, is that oh, it's like a headache. It's nothing. Take two aspirin for it. I mean, headache can be extremely disabling. As I said, it can be. It can really affect lifestyle significantly. And I think. Any headaches need to be checked out. It's worth a conversation with your primary care. Probably nothing more than that most of the time, but it's worth alerting your physician that, that there is something nagging you. If the headache is infrequent, happens once a time, let's say because of stress, because of too much coffee, too little coffee, something like that, is is a little bit of Tylenol or aspirin good for it? Yeah, absolutely, why not? If, if it works, there is no problem with it. As long as it's infrequent and nothing that that's that's kind of standing out um, every now and then.
0: So how do you go about assessing what's causing a person's headache?
1: It all starts with history, just like everything in medicine. So we need to get a very clear description of of the headache. Um, I think one of the most important factors is that what makes the headache better, what makes it worse? I give special importance to this. Um, This typical feed, this specific, uh, features of pain help really illuminate the reason of the pain. So uh, um, uh, that that always should be the beginning. Um, after that, we uh, we con- we do our neuro exam. We make sure that we really we're not missing. There is no weakness. There is no numbness. There is nothing um, uh, obvious uh, that can alert us to more serious conditions. It always helps to look at the general condition of the patient. Um, many physicians, unfortunately, they, they fall into the mistake of not knowing that headache can be a sign of TMJ or of uh, neck pain or a little bit of arthritis in the neck, uh, some eye problems. So, like, everything needs to be attended to very carefully when it comes to the head and neck, whenever we're talking about headache. And after that, that usually guides our decision of whether we need to pursue further evaluation with workup or whether we can just start treating empirically. Um, um, I think that's how the general flow goes.
0: Are there tests or scans that can confirm the existence of a headache or do you rely entirely on the patient's description?
1: Headache is a subjective feeling and uh, the scans are only important in ruling out secondary headaches. So, for example, if we're looking for Again, the, 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 the thing that most people are afraid of, brain tumor, then we do head imaging like MRI or CAT scan. Uh, if we're afraid of a vascular uh, problem, then we do uh, fizzle imaging like uh, CT angiogram uh, or uh, MR angiogram. Um, um, if we are afraid that there is some state of infection around the spine or around the brain, then we do, we get uh, fluid from uh, for, for, uh, via lumbar tab. Um, so, this is the kind of like workup that we may need to do. Um, however, again, most of the time it goes back actually to getting a detailed history and doing a good exam in uh, determining the reason of the headache. Most people's headache, the majority of it is basically primary headache, which means there is no legion behind it. There is no disease behind it. It's just it's primary, um, and, and under this, under this classification, Uh, three headaches are quite common, migraine, which is the most common by far, tension headache, and then another category, which is trigeminal headaches, such as cluster headache. Um, um, and, And again, there are no tests to determine these diagnoses. There are no tests to say, oh, this patient has a migraine, or it has a tension headache, or that one has a cluster headache. It all comes back to having a good history Um, and getting a detailed description.
0: So if a person is uh, dealing with headaches and they've made an appointment to see a a doctor or a specialist like yourself, what sorts of information should they bring with them uh, so that they're prepared for the appointment? Are you, are you um, likely to ask them how often they have headaches? and
1: that That's the most important thing. You know, headache diary can be a great asset for any physician looking into diagnose headache. Now, some people have really good memory and they have very good, uh, they, they, they are naturally good in describing their headache, uh, w- w- which is a blessing. That, that's really good. Um, however, a lot of people can. They can't remember the detail. They can't remember when it started. They can't even remember how often. When headache is something happening on a daily basis, it becomes intricate. It becomes, it, it goes into our daily life, and it becomes really difficult to extract how bad it is or how often it's happening or what makes it worse, what makes it better. And sometimes just writing them down can can give us a great clue. And actually, you'll be surprised by the number of times my patient said that writing down, their headache diary gave them insight about things that provoke their headache or make it worse, things that they didn't think of before. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that that adds a great value. And when we talk about, so basically, when we're asking about what kind of information, most of these most of the information are already on the headache diary. So we care a lot about the frequency, about the duration, about the location of the headache, about the description of the pain. Uh, we care a lot about, as I said, what makes the headache better, what makes it worse. Migraine headaches get becomes worse with uh, loud noises, bright lights, uh, while on the other hand, um, um, uh, a cluster headache, for example, the patients tend to move around and they don't want to sit still. Um, so every, every headache has its own features in 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 a way. Um, and and uh, finally, if they find they are having any associated symptoms with it. Um, do they find that they uh, uh, do they find that they uh, that their face goes numb, or do they find that they are uh, they having excessive teeling or they having runny nose? I think all of these can be quite important information when we talk about headache.
0: Upstate's HealthLink on air will be back with more information about headache after this short break. link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, here with Dr. Als Zidon. He's a neurologist and headache expert at Upstate. What makes a headache a
1: migraine? A migraine headache is by definition, is, is a headache that's moderate in intensity, moderate or severe, that lasts more than four hours, up to 72 hours, and it can be longer than that in, in, in some cases. Um, um, it can be unilateral, which means happens on one side, or bilateral, meaning it can happen on both sides of the head. It tends to be throbbing um, versus the dull pain uh, that tension headache usually has. Uh, so throbbing, like like the patient feels it as a heartbeat or or as as uh, uh, as pulsating uh, pain. Um, um, it tends to, and that's I think one of the most important features it tend to get better with lying still. So, they, they prefer to stay still. They prefer to lie down uh, during their migraine attacks. And I think, again, I can't stress that enough. I think that's one of the most important features of migraine. Um, and typically, migraine headache can come with some, uh, some symptoms uh, associated with it, specifically nausea and vomiting. Nausea is extremely common with migraine. Um, it also can bring some light sensitivity and noise sensitivity. And actually, it can bring sensitivity to anything, light, noise, smell, even light touch, uh, motion. uh, They will be excessively sensitive to any movement. Um, And all of that falls into the category of migraine. Now, none of these features is like 100% confirmatory of migraine. None of these features will be enough to say this headache is a migraine. But overall, the general picture uh, of a migraine is that it's a headache that has these features.
0: Do we know what causes migraines?
1: It's uh, uh, it's a question that we're still working on in, okay. in, uh, <laughs> in this. but do
0: they do they seem to run in families?
1: It's absolutely. there There's significant genetic component. There are few genes that are identified as 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 genes that can indeed cause headaches. Um, however, even in the absence of these specific genes, we think that, uh, migraine is, is multifactorial, and there are multiple genetic locations that can be related to it. And I, I believe just from from my personal experience is that, I, I don't know, I don't want to give numbers, but the vast majority of patients will have some form of family history of migraine headaches. Well, how do you go about treating migraines? Uh, it depends really on how bad it is and how frequent it is. I think it comes down to, to these two features. So, Uh, Let's break it down. There are two types of migraine treatment. There's the rescue treatment, and there's the preventative treatment. And we shouldn't confuse these together. It's fully important to set them apart. So rescue treatment is what we do when we have a headache. Uh, Taking Tylenol is a rescue treatment in a sense. Taking aspirin is a rescue treatment. Uh, There are some other medications that can help for rescue as well. Preventative treatment is what we do to prevent migraines from happening. So, our goal is not to stop a single attack, but to make them less frequent. Now, in general, and of course, every rule has an exemption. In general, um, if the headache, if the migraine headache is happening less than four times a month, then it's probably not worth a daily treatment. It's probably worth just finding a good rescue treatment, something that can aborted successfully every single time or the majority of the time. If the headache is lasting more, if the headache is occurring more than four times a month, then having a treatment to take when you have the headache is not going to be enough. It's not going to cut it. And you want to probably have something either on daily basis or some other form of preventative therapy that you can use to make the headache less frequent, hopefully bringing the frequency to less than four. Um, uh, I, I think this is this is the uh, outline of the treatment in a nutshell. Again, there are definite exceptions to that. Let's say somebody has one headache a month that's extremely debilitating. take them to the ER every single time. I mean, we that's probably worth preventative therapy as well. So, but the general rule is is, is the number of four, I would say.
0: Do patients outgrow migraines or is there any way to do away with them entirely?
1: Migraine my, my is, is the, uh, as many patients know, is, is very hormonal. Uh, it tends to happen in female more commonly than male. And even when it happens in female, it tends to follow a certain hormonal changes. So it's more common around the area, around the times when there are hormonal changes. Um, so uh, which is the reason why it starts when, when uh, women hit puberty. It's the reason why it's common after delivery when all the hormones start coming down. Uh, it's the reason why it's common uh, around menopause when the hormones are not stable. Um, aside from that, after menopause, things tend to calm down for some patients. Not for all of them, but definitely some of them are going to have, because the hormones are not going to start going up and down uh, every, every cycle, and that will help somehow reducing the frequency of the headache and sometimes eliminating it completely. Um, We never outgrow the genetic predisposition to have a migraine. So migraine, as I said, is in, 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 uh, by all means, it's a genetic predisposition. We are predisposed to perceive pain in the head and to become sensitive to touch, pain, light, noise, smells, and everything, and that's, that's in our genes. When we have it, so we never outgrow that predisposition, but we may outgrow the frequency of the migraine. It may become much less frequent, or or even like stop occurring altogether.
0: Well, let's talk about cluster headaches. How do they differ from migraines?
1: Cluster headache is a group of uh, is within a group of headaches that now we classify as trigeminal autonomic cephalgia. It's, it's a complex name, so let me break it down. Trigeminal means it has to do with the trigeminal nerve, which is the fifth nerve. Cephalgic uh, autonomic means has to do with our autonomic system, and the autonomic system is the system that controls our bodily function, like tearing, secretions, pub- pubal size, uh, the pupil size, the dilatation of the blood vessels, um, and, and stuff alike. Um, Cephalgia obviously means headache. so. Uh, in, in a nutshell, trigeminal autonomic cephalgia include multiple types of headache. The most common one of them is cluster headache. Um, these headaches tend to be on the same side, so they tend to be unilateral, which means happening on one side, and not only unilateral, but strictly unilateral, meaning that they happen on the same side and they do not cross to the other side. Again, of course, there are some exceptions, but usually that's the situation. Um, the cluster headache tends to be around the eye, it's extremely uh, severe, uh, very painful. Um, it's one of the most painful pain experiences uh, a human being can, can endure actually. Um, uh, it, it tends to come with strong autonomic features. And again, if I am to explain autonomic features, I will say it's like feeling like having a runny nose, a feeling that the ear is blocked, um, having uh, redness around the eye or in, on the eye itself, Uh, Having the eyelid droopy a little bit, having changes in the diameter of the tubal, and all of that happened because the autonomic system in the brain uh, becomes affected during a a cluster attack. And and I think these are the main features. One one important thing about cluster headache is that this is one of the few headaches that are more common in male compared to female by a significant margin. So it's about nine to one. Um, uh, Cluster headache tends. To have some diurnal um, variation, it tends to happen the same time every single time. So people will say that they get a headache three a.m. in the morning every single morning throughout the cluster attack. Um, while migraine doesn't have that strict timing.
0: Do these cluster headaches respond to pain relievers, or how do you how do you treat them?
1: Um, the the most important. Think about cluster headache, and it can be one of the most frustrating things that it's it's of short duration. I mean, it lasts only 30 minutes to 90 minutes by definition, and that unfortunately sometimes makes it shorter than being able to respond um, via oral medication. Because by the time the oral medication like gets absorbed and start becoming effective, the cluster would remit on its own. Um, uh, but we can't leave patients with that amount of pain for all that time. 30 minutes will, leave like, will, will feel like eternity. Uh, I mean, 30 minutes on a treadmill feels like eternity, so I can't even imagine what's like when somebody has a cluster attack. Um, but I think, I think so, which is the reason we have some other methods of, of treating it. Um, there are some injections which can be given, and this can be faster because they can, they can start working within 5 to 10 minutes. Um, oxygen tends to be extremely effective. So uh, for some people who we can't find another way of controlling the cluster, we, uh, we prescribe them oxygen tanks and we give it to them so they can apply high flow oxygen and that tend to eliminate the cluster uh, to, to, to stop the cluster very, very quickly and abruptly. But remains, I think the most important thing is finding a way to reduce the frequency of cluster. Um we we don't want cluster attack to happen altogether because once it happens, it's it's the bean is going to be there. Um, even if we eliminate it in five to ten minutes, but these five to ten minutes are gonna still be very significant.
0: Well, I've seen headache listed as one of the early symptoms of a COVID-19 infection. Are you seeing patients who are still struggling with headaches after they've no, survived?
1: Amber, it's such an important question. Thank you for bringing it up. And it's in this time, we, we, we are still learning about COVID. Few things we know about COVID as a neurologist for sure. One thing is that COVID presents with loss of sensation, loss of smelling and taste. And we think this happened because the virus has the capability to um, actually invade within the brain Uh, brain part that's that's responsible for for smelling and and tasting, Um, uh, unlike most other, other, like, typical common cold viruses. Um, uh, That's one thing about it. The second thing, we know that COVID tends to increase the likelihood of clotting. So, people may present with increased likelihood of having strokes. Now, these two features are the most important when we discuss the neurological effect of COVID. Headache is by far one of the most common presentations of COVID. Uh, it usually comes with the other features like the malaise, the fatigue, the, uh, the, the fever that doesn't respond to, to Tylenol, uh, the, uh, the, the loss of smell, and the loss of taste. Uh, there have been multiple studies trying to, to look specifically at the headache features. and. Uh, uh, there have been, like, a few big studies, actually, and a few big surveys about the type of headache. I don't think anything very, very specific came out of them that can be that we can say, yeah, this headache definitely sounds like COVID. Um, actually, most of what we found is that COVID headache can be uh, usually as, as both sides. It's not on one side like a migraine headache would be. Uh, it's usually a uh, um, severe pressure, dull, achy, um, uh, however, it can be throbbing at times, so that wasn't very helpful. Um, it's, uh, it tends not to respond to break, like regular over-the-counter analysis. Uh, so again, and again, people reporting that uh, their everyday headache or like their, uh, their, their usual headache, the one they get once in a blue moon, uh, that would go away with Tylenol. This one usually wouldn't. Um, and it uh, it comes with other COVID symptoms, mainly the loss of smell and the loss of taste. This actually, this specific feature is the biggest indicator that the headache is COVID related.
0: And so it sounds like there's still a lot of research into what this all means.
1: I think it's gonna take us years looking into how COVID affects the nervous system and how it affects the different diseases Uh, One thing, for example, that uh, I've seen from from many of my patients, which is really we don't have a lot of data on, is that people with migraine, when they get COVID, like they go into that period of having really severe headaches, severe migraine headaches with all migraine features that stay for way longer than average. Um, And again, we still, we know very little about that. Uh, Thankfully, most of them so far, I mean, I, I think the majority of my patients have recovered uh, reasonably and well, um, but I'm pretty sure if we look in, in a bigger scale, we're going to find uh, that there's been some debilitating headaches as a result of COVID.
0: Well, let me ask you in general, how common is it for headache patients to become depressed?
1: This question has many facets to it. Uh, the relation between pain and depression has been recognized long ago, and, and it's uh, it's one of the major things that physicians will investigate when patient comes with chronic pain. Um, at, at the same time, the relation between headache and and depression doesn't mean that one of them caused the other. We shouldn't look at headache as a result of depression. We should look really into headache and try to treat it to the best we can. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, many people fall into the mistake of, of like putting their headaches on depression or stress of the life or having too many, having to work too many hours or the busy family or stressful events. And yes, all of that can play a role in headache. But yet, that should not be an excuse for the patient or for their providers to say that, I mean, this is what it is. No, actually, it's not. We have to treat, we treat patients to improve their lifestyle. We don't treat them. We don't change their lifestyles. We we want to we wanna keep them active. We want to, I mean, people are going to go to work. They're going to be stressed in work no matter what we do. And we should give them most attention we can to treat any symptoms that come out of this stress. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty common for any chronic pain, not only headache, but for any chronic pain, if it goes untreated to become accompanied with significant depression. Um, uh, I think depression needs to be treated and the chronic pain needs to be treated as well. There are, however, a few things worth mentioning. A, a triad of depression, tension headache, and fibromyalgia is pretty common. Um, uh, and we we know that treating like these three conditions should actually come together uh, because treating one of them will affect the other two. Uh, so we, we tend to look at the whole picture every single time we see them. Um, uh, but as I said before, um, we depression is not gonna cause migraine headache. Depression may make migraine headache worse, but migraine headache need to be looked at and need to be treated appropriately. Um, uh, yes, depression can be, depression in general can reduce our threshold to any pain. And that's true when it comes to low back, to neck, and of course to headache. Migraine is reduced threshold to head pain. So migraine, they are very sensitive and anything will provoke a headache. And and yes, the the two combined together is probably not a good combination, uh, definitely not in in favor of the patient, Um, but but these are are separate many times and they need to be looked at separately many times.
0: Well, this has been very informative. I thank you, Dr. Al Zidon. He's an assistant professor of neurology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink On Air, what to expect from an annual eye exam. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cataracts, glaucoma, and macular degeneration are traditional eye ailments, but your eye doctor may also recognize other warning signs that pertain to your whole body health. Today, I'm talking about this with Dr. Marietta Abizaga. She's an instructor of ophthalmology and visual science at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Abizaga. Thank you for having me, happy to be here. What can an eye exam tell you about a person's cognitive ability? So I am sure you have heard of this before
2: that the eye functions like a camera. It has a lens to help focus the light, a film which we call the retina that captures the light and a cable or the optic nerve that connects the eye to the brain. So the signal is sent um, to the brain for interpretation. With that said, the retina is an extension of the central nervous system, meaning that the retina and the brain share many structural and functional features together.
0: So how do the blood vessels in the eyes of people with Alzheimer's differ from those in the eyes of people without cognitive impairment? So since Alzheimer's affects the brain, um,
2: it can therefore also affect the back of the eye in patients with Alzheimer's studies have shown that vessel density decreases. Vascular parameters change and even thinning of the fibers that connect the retina to the optic nerve happens. Um, What's interesting about this is that studies have shown that we can actually measure these changes in the eye before signs of Alzheimer's even appear in patients.
0: Now, let me ask you about diabetes, because I know one in four people with diabetes don't even know they have it. Can you examine someone's eyes and detect diabetes?
2: Yes, um, absolutely. Through a dilated eye exam, we are able to visualize the retina on the back of the eye and can detect changes that occur in diabetic patients. And some of these changes that do happen to the back of the eye, they're known as diabetic retinopathy.
0: So what what does diabetic retinopathy do? Does that impact someone's ability to see?
2: Um, so diabetic retinopathy, it occurs when elevated blood sugar levels um, damage the blood vessels in the back of the eye and damage to these blood vessels, it causes them to swell and leak blood onto the retina. So the blood vessels, they can also close, which will stop blood from passing through. Um, And an occlusion to to the blood flow can lead to an ischemic event in the eye. And then this ischemic event will cause abnormal new blood vessels to grow. And in these new blood vessels that do grow, they're very fragile and they break easily. And it causes even more blood to leak onto the retina.
0: Is there anything that can be done to help preserve sight if diabetes is diagnosed early?
2: Um, yes, um, and I guess to go back just a little bit on how it can impact our eye when we talk about diabetes, because I, um, I didn't think I answered that correctly. Um, so patients can have diabetic retinopathy and not even know they have it. Um, this is because it often has no symptoms in the early stages of it. Um, as diabetic retinopathy gets worse, it can um, uh, patients may notice things like floaters in their vision, having blurred vision having vision that changes sometimes from blurry to clear, seeing dark spots in their field of vision, and even having poor night vision. And in some severe cases, of course, it can even cause loss of vision. And um, to go back to how we can preserve sight in the early stages, controlling the underlying conditions that exacerbate diabetic retinopathy, such as blood pressure, uh, blood sugar levels are the key in preserving vision really. Um, other things like following dietary and exercise plans that's recommended by a nutritionist or doctor is another way to stabilize the sugar levels and, and blood pressure. And of course, taking the prescribed medication that's issued by your doctor um, is also very important. Um, and then in moderate to severe stages of diabetic retinopathy, further intervention and close follow-up with a retina specialist would be necessary.
0: Can you tell from an eye exam if someone has high cholesterol? Um, Yes,
2: absolutely. Um, One of the findings that uh, can signify elevated cholesterol is the presence of this white gray or blue ring around the eye. We call this Arcus. Um, Other exam findings that can indicate high cholesterol is presence of plaques inside the arteries located in the back of the eye.
0: So how does high cholesterol tie to glaucoma so um to go a little bit back
2: glaucoma glaucoma is an optic neuropathy that is caused by damage to the optic nerve when uh, damage to the optic nerve occurs it interrupts communication between the eye and the brain um, glaucoma has different mechanisms of how it happens but we focus mainly on eye pressures being one of the main factors that we can control. And what I mean by control in the sense we can manage through uh, medical therapy, through laser procedures, or even surgery. Um, eye pressure, it has to do with fluid that is being created inside of our eyes and, it, uh, and its rate of how fast it drains out of the eye. In some cases, either the fluid inside the eye cannot drain fast enough or there is a complete blockage of our drain um, system, not allowing the fluid to flow. Other ways in which the optic nerve can damage is based on how much blood supply gets to the optic nerve. In this case, patients with elevated cholesterol can have an increased risk for glaucoma. Built up of cholesterol inside the arteries can lead to stiffening of the arteries, which would decrease the blood supply to the optic nerve and therefore can damage the nerve in that matter.
0: So it is important to know about high cholesterol If someone has an overactive thyroid, what might that do to their eyes?
2: So the thyroid gland makes hormones that help regulate many of our body's functions, such as our metabolism. Graves' disease is a condition that affects the thyroid gland, causing an overproduction of these hormones. When Graves' disease involves the eyes, it affects the muscles and tissues surrounding the eye, which can lead to bulging of the eyes.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate optometrist Dr. Marietta Abazaga. Now, we've talked on HealthLink on Air before about stroke symptoms um, sudden numbness, confusion, severe headache but what can you tell us about vision changes that signal an oncoming stroke?
2: So, um, some symptoms that may be associated with an oncoming stroke um, can be temporary vision, usually in one eye or both eyes, and it usually happens over a few seconds. And another symptom may be double vision.
0: So if, if someone has sudden vision loss, that would be an emergency, right? Absolutely. Um, there are many reasons that
2: can cause vision loss, but sudden, painless vision loss, um, when that happens, stroke is one of the highly differentials. You should seek immediate medical attention, and this should happen.
0: What happens to the eyes during a stroke typically? So there is a good communication between the eye and the rest of the body through the vast
2: network of blood vessels and nerves. During the stroke, there is an interruption of blood flow to certain parts of the brain. Um, same situation applies to the eyes that interruption of blood flow will cause um, loss of oxygen to tissues in the eye, and therefore can cause loss of vision or temporary, meaning loss of vision, temporary or even permanent. Uh,
0: someone who has survived a stroke, I wanted to ask, are they at increased risk for visual problems? And is there anything an eye doctor needs to know ahead of time about the patient?
2: Yes, yes, so for doctors, it is important to know when the stroke happened. Um, uh, If underlying um, conditions that cause a stroke, like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, if those are under control. Um, Knowing changes to their medical regimen, like taking, let's say, blood thinners, and how the stroke is impacting their their overall patient's activities of daily living are just as important. Um, A large portion of the brain is dedicated to vision and therefore there is a high likelihood of strokes affecting vision. In many patients, um, they may end up with permanent double vision and some peripheral vision loss, depending on the severity of the stroke that happened.
0: Okay. Let me ask you about a person who complains about dry eyes, light sensitivity, and night blindness. What might those symptoms point you toward? Um,
2: with Such symptoms, I would think about vitamin
0: A deficiency. Vitamin A, what does that do for our eyes? So, vitamin A is actually an important part of our eyes
2: function Um, in order for our eyes to observe the full spectrum of light. It requires a certain pigment um, to be produced um, so that the retina can work properly. If vitamin A um, is low, it interrupts the production of these pigments to the back of the eye and then it would lead to these symptoms of night blindness, dry eye and light sensitivity.
0: Interesting. Uh, I'd also like to ask you about the connection between Lyme disease and what might be visible during an eye exam. Yes, so
2: the eye findings they vary depending on the stage of the disease. Um, most common uh, presentation is usually conjunctivitis, which is a red eye with possible discharge, um, which can cause some light sensitivity and mild swelling near the eyelid. But as the disease progresses, it can involve even deeper structures of the eye um, to lead to inflammation inside of the eye, known as uveitis. Um, This usually presents as a red, achy eye with sensitivity to light, blurred vision, and even floaters. But as the disease continues to progress, it can involve multiple cranial nerves that control the muscles of our eyes and face. Um, And then this would lead to weakness of the eye muscles to cause double vision as well as drooping of the face um, and in late stages it can even cause scarring to the cornea which is the most superficial part of the eye.
0: I had not realized that Lyme disease that uh, you know conjunctivitis could be a symptom of that so that's something yes. that might appear early in the disease? Yes yes usually. Does Lyme disease then have the ability to do lasting damage to a person's vision?
2: Um, yes, it can. Um, as mentioned earlier, based on the disease process and the courses going through and what specific structures of the eye is affecting, it can absolutely be
0: devastating to vision. Should someone who is diagnosed with Lyme disease, should they set up an appointment to see an eye doctor?
2: Absolutely. A patient can see an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, um, with a condition with this condition, patients will require to undergo a complete systemic um, uh, neurological and an ocular examination to see what's going on. since it can involve multiple systems.
0: What should people expect from an annual eye exam? We're all told to get annual eye exams, but what what can you tell us that would help us prepare for them?
2: So usually for an um, annual eye exam, we are checking to see how your vision um, is functioning. Um, and then we, we do check for example, for a prescription for glasses, if they're required to help improve your vision. And then we are checking for things like eye pressure to make sure there's no um, glaucoma involvement. And then we dilate the eyes um, using certain drops so that we can visualize the back of the eye, the retina. Um, to get a better understanding of the overall eye health. And um, with the dilation part, it can make the eyes a little bit sensitive to the light um, after you're dilated. And it takes a few hours for the dilation to reverse. But when we're looking to the back of the eye, we're examining the overall health. um, And then after the dilated exam, depending on what we see, we can determine as far as when do we follow up with patients appropriately.
0: And do you recommend annual eye exams For adults or at what age should you start getting annual eye exams?
2: So uh, eye exams can start as young as, you know, uh, infant, believe it or not, depending on what uh, may be going on with the eye or if there is certain um, uh, history, family history of eye conditions, Um, children should be evaluated, including to adults. But ideally speaking, um, with children, if they are overall healthy, you can have an eye exam Uh, one to two years. But then with adults, after we get to a certain age, let's say after maybe age of 50, we would recommend to get an eye exam every year as certain eye conditions are more prevalent after that age that we would want to evaluate for.
0: Well, thank you so much to Dr. Marietta Abizaga. She's an instructor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Pam Freeman
3: is a poet and lyricist from Skinny Atlas, New York. She sent us a lyrical poem that is equal parts meditation and prayer. She calls it a koan in five acts, and I'll remind our listeners that the dictionary defines koan as a paradoxical riddle used in Zen Buddhism to provoke enlightenment. Here is her poem, The Stunning, Sees Me Beautifully, a Cohen in Five Acts. One, we take our lessons where we find them, find our love where it takes us, catch a glimpse in the dim glass faintly, what doesn't matter is what breaks us. I'm not beautiful and never will be, still she sees me beautifully. Two, you could quarry desire from the paperback bin, Mirror your worth in a baking tin. Pawn your ring for a Dalkin shield. Wish for a tongue to say how you feel. I'm not beautiful and never will be. Still, she sees me beautifully. Who saves the rescuer from himself? Who steals the treasure the thief hid too well? Who hears the secret the thunder tells? Who sells the pilgrim a road map to hell? Now share a cup with one accord, bear a blessing you can't afford. Declare a gospel of just one word. Spare the outlaw who guards the herd. I'm not beautiful and never will be. Still, she sees me beautifully. Four, the music will heal what it understands. The plague will be passed among clapping hands. The rhythms will guide our leaderless band as we dance until we're too weak to stand. Then the veil will lift to reveal yet another. The shadow will yield the night's true color. The glass will unseal the reflections it covers. God, the mother, sister, lover. I'm not beautiful and never will be. Still, she sees me beautifully. Five, giver, receiver, destroyer, believer explainer, complainer, sneak and seeker, crooning lullabies, lies, she commands the tides, labors and lusts, has her own past, surprise, honors and shames, afflicts and sustains, breathes in the space between body and name, knowing all, knowing best, almighty pest, drowning her litter of souls in her flame. No, I'm not beautiful. And never will be. Still, she sees me beautifully.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, living donor kidney transplants. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host Amber Smith. Thanking you for listening.